we are in a culture that is filled with skepticism. And skepticism, I would argue, is not a gift of the Spirit, but is a work of the enemy. To give a brief definition of skepticism, according to this guy named Webster, he said that skepticism is doubt as to the truth of something. From the moon landing in 1969 to Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game to the validity of the 2020 election to something as silly as Dude Perfect's trick shots. So many things that we hear about, we are skeptical towards. And our culture of hyper-skepticism has created this impossible hurdle or seemingly impossible hurdle for those of us who are advocating for truth. The mantra of the day is to live your truth, which unfortunately at its roots is not a search for belief in absolute truth, but it's a pursuit of luxury and self-gratification as long as autonomy can be maintained. Live your truth is merely just a way of being comfortable and allowing you to do whatever it is that you want without a search for an absolute moral truth. Welcome to evangelism in America in 2022, am I right, church? And this leads us to the story, excuse me, this leads us to the story that Jake read for us this morning. As we've looked at who Jesus is, we've looked at these stories of the inbreaking of heaven to earth through these various miracles. We preached on Jesus calming the storm. He caused the fig tree to wither. He cast the demon out of the man who lived amongst the tombs. He cast the demon out of a daughter of Abraham. And he healed the woman with the problem of bleeding. And if you miss those messages, you can go back and listen to all of those on our website or Spotify. Don't do it now, but you can do it later. But in this miracle, we have a man who was healed instantly, and yet he was consistently met with skepticism from sources expected and unexpected. And so this morning, we are going to look at the story of this man being healed, born blind, and we're going to look at four different movements within this story. We have the encounter, the miracle, the skeptics, and the Messiah. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to John chapter 9. We're going to anchor ourselves in this text this morning. Um, so first, first movement we're going to look at is the encounter. So to set the scene before we dive into our text, Jesus had just made this bold declaration in verse 58 of chapter 8, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And if you're familiar with the text, but even for those of you that aren't, that phrase that Jesus said was not just a flippant sentence at the end of a sermon because Jesus was fishing for a really good point. But this statement that before Abraham was, I am, was a huge statement that upset that Jewish audience because number one, it said that he existed before their spiritual father, Abraham, who he had died over 2,000 years previous. And then by him declaring that I am, he is equating himself with God. In Exodus chapter 3, in the midst of the burning bush, when Moses asks him, how can I describe you to the nation of Israel? He says, I am that I am. And so by Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am, he is declaring equality with God and knowing that he was actually with 
Abraham and that Abraham was familiar with Jesus. This is a bold statement. And because the Jewish audience wasn't very keen to that idea, because they knew that Jesus was this guy born of a carpenter's family, very ordinary, he's from Nazareth, and nothing good comes from Nazareth, that they apparently didn't hold that too well. And so in verse 59 of chapter 8, they picked up stones to throw at him. But, like what Jesus does often, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, there are often times that people are trying to come after Jesus, whether it's to make him king or to throw stones, and there will be little throwaway phrases like, it wasn't Jesus' time, so he like split through the crowds. Jesus would have been a really good running back. Like he's just like juking everybody after, like they're trying to kill the guy, and he's just like, it's not my time. Like, come on. What a savior we have. Just That's a side point. That one was for free. But we enter into chapter 9 with the story of the man being born blind, and we have to understand this context, that the Jewish people are very upset with him, and they are actually coming after him, trying to kill him. So this isn't just like a Tuesday afternoon stroll through the park. Jesus has people coming for his head. So let's pick back up in John chapter 9, verse 1. And it begins, as he was passing by. Which seems like Jesus is pretty nonchalant when, you know, people are trying to kill him. He is treating it like a Tuesday afternoon walk. He's just walking by so calm. It's as if Jesus was totally unaffected by the angry crowds that were coming after him. In a commentary on the book of John, Charles Spurgeon had this to say about the character of our Savior. He said this, One of the things worthy to be noticed in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged and insulted and slandered him. What a beautiful thing about our Savior that even as people were pressing against him, even as he heard and saw people pick up stones to try to kill him. He's still calm. In the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of all the things around him, he was still able to pass by. Let's keep going. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which seems like a potentially odd question. Because like we said, they're, they had just heard from the Jewish audience that they're pretty upset at this guy named Jesus who's equating himself with God, and they're running for their lives seemingly because people are trying to stone Jesus, and these guys are just walking along, see a blind man, and they decide to pause and ask, who sinned, this guy or his parents? It seems odd, but... If we look at the context, as inquisitive students, these disciples ask their rabbi an honest question. Because in their culture, and particularly in parts of the Jewish communities, some, some Jews believed a few things about pre-existing physical ailments. First thing, some Jews believed that a baby could actually sin inside the womb. Some Jews believed that a parent's transgression 
could lead to physical deformities or imperfections in their own children. And some Jews also believe that the physical deformity or imperfection would be a punishment for future sins. This was a common belief amongst the Jewish culture of that day is that a physical deformity would be a cause of some kind of sin or wrongdoing. And so as disciples, as a majority of Jesus' disciples would have been familiar with Jewish culture and tradition, they're asking an honest question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And to be honest, we have a tendency to do the exact same thing. Something goes wrong and we instantly equate it with some kind of sin or transgression that I must have done. But yet, Jesus took time to get to the issue at hand. Because it wasn't because this guy had such a rap sheet that might have been longer than the Mississippi River. It might not have been because of his parents or himself. But Jesus took time to address his disciples. And he said this in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Quickly and briefly, just to address this, was Jesus claiming that the blind man and his parents were perfect and without sin? Of course not. But what he was stating is the obvious claim that the cause of this man's blindness was not because of their sins. His blindness was not because of a transgression of his parents or maybe while he was in the womb, he did not sin while he was in the womb. This physical deformity was not because of sin, but as Jesus so boldly declares, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Let's pause for a quick second. And let's just put ourselves in this story really quick. This man didn't just have a slight astigmatism or a need for a strong prescription for his glasses. He came out of the womb and was not able to see, or what we call blindness. Imagine what his childhood was like. Never knew what his mom or dad looked like. Didn't know what his room looked like. He didn't know if he was matching clothes or not. Like all the times that he's still trying to figure out where he's at, running into walls, doing all sorts of different things, and just rubbing up against some kids were still able to see, and yet he wasn't. And just imagine how many times he asked his mom and his dad, Why am I born blind? Why am I blind? And just imagine being the mom or dad and having your sweet, beautiful kid made in the image of God, but yet was blind. And your kid asking, Daddy, Mommy, why am I blind? Imagine having to answer that question. And that this man continued to grow up, and most likely because, as we'll look later, he grew up in a Jewish home. So most likely he's praying to God and crying out and asking, God, can you just heal me? I don't want to be blind anymore. I want to see. I know you created all of creation because the Torah says that you created all things. I just want to see. 
And up to this point in his life, those prayers have not been answered. His prayers, hopes, and dreams have been met with disappointment, shame, deep sadness, and feeling rejected and overlooked by God. And also, he may have been blind, but he wasn't deaf. Imagine the amount of times that people walked by him and asked the same question. How many times people would have walked by and accused things of this man? Because we all know that those side comments that are said in our direction sit a little deep and they hurt. Imagine this man who has been born blind his entire life, overlooked, most likely verbally abused, looked past. So imagine him as this group of guys led by this rabbi stop by and ask a question most likely that he's already wrestled with. Who sinned, this man or this parent, or his parents that he was born blind? And then this teacher responds in this way, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Can you imagine the potential confusion he might have had so that God's work could be displayed in him? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Because with any form of disease or disability or sickness in this culture, that was seen as punishment for some transgression or wrongdoing. And there were boundaries where someone with some kind of physical deformity could not enter into the assembly of God's people. He had been rejected, overlooked, dealt with shame and deep sadness, feelings of rejection. And he hears this guy saying that this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. At this point, the first skeptic is the blind man. Who is this guy? But what if, as Joseph proclaimed in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph said this to his brothers, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result. What if the things that had happened happened so that the good that was about to come would happen? Because our God is, as Mark Crawford beautifully said, he is a redeemer. And God is about to do a beautiful redeeming work through his son, Jesus. So first, we had the encounter. Now we're at the next movement, which is the miracle. So let's get back to the text, verse 6. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. So a few things to note with this miracle. Number one, this man didn't ask for a miracle. If you look within this text, this guy doesn't ask Jesus, Jesus, can you heal me? In this text, he didn't ask for a miracle. Don't you find it interesting? Because there are story after story within the Gospels of Jesus asking people if they would like a miracle done. 
In particular, in Mark chapter 10, there's a man by the name of Bartimaeus, or they called him Blind Bartimaeus. He heard that Jesus was walking by, and he cries out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And then Jesus calls for Bartimaeus to be brought to him. And Jesus doesn't just instantly give him a miracle. He actually asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus asks to be healed, and he's healed. But this isn't what happens here. Jesus, without invitation, makes a mud pie, wipes it on his eyes, and tell him, tells him to go wash what he put on his face. So the question has to be asked, like, does it seem like Jesus is just being really rude? I know as kids, we loved making mud pies, and that's fun, but to just spit on the dirt and rub eyes on a guy that, like, seemingly he had just met seems pretty rude. But why do you think Jesus didn't ask for this man's permission? My personal hypothesis is this, that this man his family, and his friends, and many others had been praying for this miracle for so long, and Jesus knew it. Jesus didn't go into this moment without an understanding of the spiritual disposition of their family. That Jesus was familiar with their cries of deliverance and healing and restoration to his sight. So Jesus didn't go into the situation not knowing what was going on, but Jesus, fully knowing what was going on, didn't need to extend an invitation because the invitation had already been extended, which also, as Tony mentioned, which is why prayer is so important. That your prayers and your cries for desperation are heard not on deaf ears but with open ears by our Savior. And when we petition God in our prayers, we yield our whole selves, our body, our soul, timing, preferences before God, and we patiently wait on him, not expecting God to align with our personal agenda, but with our prayers of yesterday, last month, last year, and decades past, that those are still in the throne room of God, and God has his timeline, and we, as we pray, submit ourselves to him, not expecting God to submit himself to us. And these long-awaited prayers are about to be answered. So let's get into the second question we have to ask with this miracle. Why in the world did Jesus spit on the dirt? Like, doesn't that seem kind of odd and gross? Like, we're like kind of on the back end of this pandemic and we understand more now than ever the effect of germs and all sorts of things. And yet Jesus spits into dirt, which I know for those parents out there, if your kids get all messy with like spit and dirt, you're like, oh, they're so filthy. And then you have to give them a bath or hose them off or whatever your preference. But this seems odd. Jesus could have just like laid his hand on his head and could have healed him. He could have just snapped his fingers. He could have done something else, but he decided to spit in the dirt. Like with Bartimaeus, he could have just instantly healed him. But to find the answer for why Jesus did this, let's take a quick trip back to the Garden of Eden. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. God created humanity, and it was really good. For those of you that grew up in church, do you remember where the source of humanity was when God created us? God breathed on the dirt. You're right. I see some heads nodding. You're like, I know where he's going. Well done. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So the origin story of humanity begins in the dirt, which is why later, after God curses them from the dirt, from the dirt or the dust you were formed, and to the dust you shall return. Our origin story is in the dirt. And Jesus, using this dirt and this miracle, it points us back to the garden where perfect life actually began. Then at this point, we get the dirt, but what about the spitting? That seems kind of odd. But in the Hebrew culture, there was a common medical theory of their day that actually attributed healing attributes towards saliva. And as I did that research, I'm like, okay, that must have just been like the Hebrews didn't know, but now we have computers and technology and all sorts of other things. Like, they were probably misinformed. And by the way, I did way too much research on saliva. <laughs> and I have no idea what I'm going to do with that information after this sermon. But in 2013, there is an interesting study done on saliva. And that saliva, actually, according to the Hebrews, they were right. That there are some form of healing attributes that saliva contains. Saliva creates a humid environment, thus improving the survival and functionality of inflammatory cells that are crucial for wound healing. I know, so much from a sermon. When Tony prayed that you would learn things, this just might be it. In addition, saliva contains several protein which play a role in the different stages of wound healing. And saliva contains substantial amounts of tissue factor which dramatically accelerates blood clotting and stopping from bleeding. So to bring this home, the dirt is a symbol of the origin of creation and perfection, and saliva is a symbol of healing and restoration. And with this man born blind that has this dirt with spit rubbed on his eyes, that Jesus in that moment is saying, we are bringing you back to the origin of perfect creation, and with the saliva we are going to heal and restore your sight. So this wasn't a random act. Jesus was very methodical in the way that he healed this man. So then we get to point number three about this miracle. The blind man had to trust a complete stranger who had just put mud on his eyes to go to the pool of Siloam. And Jesus never promised the miracle would happen. If we look back at the text in verse 7, he simply said to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Didn't give marching orders after that. He just said to go and wash. And this man, and maybe it was just because he was like at the end of his rope and he was just going to try anything because he's been praying for so long and seeking a miracle. 
that maybe this crazy man that said that this is for all of God's work to be done, and he just decided to spit mud and rub it in my eyes, just maybe this might be it. Maybe it was out of desperation. Or maybe he knew there was something different about this man. Maybe he knew that this person who he couldn't see, but that he heard, maybe he was willing to trust this guy. But could you also imagine two potential questions of doubt or skepticism as he walked towards the pool? Reminder, he is blind. And he told him to go walk to a pool. But could you imagine some of these thoughts, like as he's taking steps towards this pool, am I really trusting this guy? Like, could I just turn around and act like the mud on my eyes was a happy accident and move about my way? He might be thinking what other people might be thinking about him because he has mud on his eyes. Like, what are they going to think? That's the blind guy. Now he has mud on his eyes. What's he up to? Because what happens if he gets to the pool and he doesn't get what he expects? What if he washes and he's still blind? Or... The question you might be asking, what if he gets to the pool, washes off, and he can see? How does his life change then? He has all of these questions, but in the midst of the questions, he chooses to walk by faith. He didn't have a detailed game plan after that. Jesus didn't walk with him to the pool, but he had to put one foot in front of the other in faith that Jesus would do what he said he would do. And church family, welcome to our invitation. We may not see what's ahead of us, and Jesus might not give you a detailed account of the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. I know two years ago, we, we wouldn't have really understood all the things that our church family would have gone through. But yet we're not called to have all the details. We're called to walk by faith and trust that Jesus is leading us to someplace greater. And in this place, honestly, this morning, church, I was filled with gratitude and hope for the future of our church family. And that didn't happen because our meetings were so killer and we had all the details planned out and we knew all the things. We have a group of people here, and you're included, where we just bowed down before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and said, this is hard. We don't get it, but we trust you. And look at what God has done. It might not be as big of a miracle as we've been reading, but gosh darn it, God's been good to our church. And we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. And this man is sure as heck walking by faith and not by sight up to this point. And that all of this happened as a fulfillment of Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4. Jesus rolls into synagogue, and the scroll just happens to be in Isaiah, and he opens it, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And he ends, today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. This is what Jesus came to do, church. He came to set captives free. 
He came to recover sight to the blind. He came to preach good news to the poor. And that is a ministry that Jesus didn't stop as he ascended to heaven. This is still Jesus' ministry. Good news is still being preached. The blind are receiving sight. There are people who are being released from bondage. Can I just preach for just a quick minute? Are we going to let what's going on around us affect what God might be trying to do in and through us? Are we operating out of what we see around us or are we in tune with the Holy Spirit and walking in step with him? Because it's easy for us to have our sights fixed on the wreckage of the culture around us or what's going on in wherever the political things are all happening. And we get so caught up and fixated on what's happening in government and what's happening in schools and what's happening all around which those things matter. And we pray for those things. But are we walking by faith or are we walking by sight or are we too concerned with our appearances because we might look weird because we feel this sense of gratitude and worship towards God and I know I should lift my hands because that's what God's called me to do but yet no one around me is doing it are we too concerned about our appearances because Jesus was never concerned about our appearances he's concerned about our hearts and if our hearts are filled with gratitude and we see what God has done around us and if we see a lost and dying world around us that needs the good news of Jesus, who cares what we look like? Is Jesus worth it to you? Because this guy barely knew Jesus and he was willing to walk by faith because God can do a lot with our faith. If we would just trust him, as he said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. Do we have faith the size of a mustard seed, church? So we have the encounter. We have the miracle. It's time for the next phase, which is the skeptics. As I mentioned in the beginning, we can't escape skepticism. Especially in our culture in 2022, we can't escape it. And in this story, skepticism was on the back end of a miracle. Because there's nothing more that the enemy hates than for God to break and for the good news to spread. And the enemy's often method of trying to stop what God is doing is to create skepticism. And this man who was blind his entire life, came back from that pool and he could see. Imagine his face goes into the pool with all the doubts, but yet he's still having faith in what Jesus is doing. And he comes up, the mud's out of his eyes, and look, and he can see. He sees the pool. He sees what people look like. He might be like, oh, that's, where, that's what that looks like. But he might look up and see the sky and all the colors and the beauty of God's creation. And he comes back thinking he's going to be met with a grand parade of what God has done. And yet, skepticism. Is that really him? Are you sure? That, like, it kind of looks like him. But that can't be him. He surely can't see. 
And within this passage, we have three different groups of skeptics that I want to briefly mention. First, his neighbors. Second, the Pharisees. And third, his parents. The first one were his neighbors. So he comes back from the pool. And in verse 8, his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. He had a good memory, so that's good. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. And then they didn't know where Jesus went. His neighbors, the people who had seen him for most of his life, were doubting what God had done in him. In church family, there will be things that God potentially does, whether big or small, in your life that radically change the trajectory of your life. And there might be some people that might have known you as like little Sam or little Tony, and now your life has changed for the gospel of Jesus. And yet, well, you used to do that. You can't be changed. Jesus didn't do that in your life. Which is why even for me, when I go back to my hometown of New London, Ohio, they see me as little Geordie. I'm not little Geordie anymore. I'm like 31 now. I'm a grown man. But yet, even there, they remember me as a little pastor's kid who was getting into trouble. But yet Jesus has done a deep work in my life. And in this story, this man has completely changed. He can see now. He's had an encounter with Jesus. And wouldn't you think, too, that they would have known that this man was blind and now that he could probably be able to point out evidence of like, oh yeah, your voice sounds like Bill. Hi, Bill, I can see you. You're pretty tall, brown hair. Like, he could have done that. He could have used his evidence. But their questions weren't about the evidence. Their questions, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And they were more concerned not about him being able to see, but their questions of then how were your eyes open? They were looking for how it happened, not that it happened. Because often when God does do something in your life, people might doubt the source of that miracle. Like you've started to feel better. Oh, is that because you went keto? You're starting to exercise well? Like, maybe you just, like, went to the chiropractor, got adjusted, and that's why you're physically feeling better. But yet, you know the source of that miracle was not from anything this world sees, but it's by Jesus having met you right where you're at and healing you. Their skepticism had nothing to do with him, but on the source of the miracle. Then we get to the second skeptics, and it's the Pharisees. So the passage continued. They brought the man, in verse 13, to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath, which, as Nathan and I have preached, Jesus, for some reason, did a lot of healings on Sabbath, which they saw as this religious day to do nothing, but yet the purpose of Sabbath was to rest, redeem, and to restore. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did through his miracles, was to redeem and restore, and to bring rest. This man who had been restless and begging for his entire life, now on the Sabbath, found his first true day of redemption and rest. 
But the Pharisees didn't see it that way. They were too focused on the law instead of on what Jesus came to do. And the Pharisees kept asking him how he received his sight. And this man continues to give testimony after testimony of what Jesus had done. I know I need to move quickly, but real quick, church family, if Jesus has done something in your life, you don't need a bachelor's degree in biblical studies to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. You have a story, you have a testimony, and that is enough. You know how Satan's defeated in the end? Read it in Revelation by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Not by how well you can dissect the gospel of Mark. It's through your testimony and what God has done through your life that you then are called to go preach, which is called the good news. And that is how the enemy is defeated. And you have access to that. No one can take away your story. No one can take away what God has done in your life. And this man with no theological training is standing up to the Pharisees who were like the premier guys in the religious view of that day. And he's standing toe to toe with them. Not because of his training, but because of what his God has done for him. And he stands and gives testimony of the good news that he was blind and now he can see. And I love towards the end of his interactions with with the Pharisees, and he gets to verse 27 of chapter 9. He said, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Like, I love this guy's attitude. He's so confident in what Jesus has done for him. He walked by faith, and now he can see what Jesus has done, and he's standing toe-to-toe with the guys that most people would have cowered before, and he's like, you want to be his disciples too? I could tell you about him. So church family, as we experience what God has done for us, and by the way, I love that we had a a course training on how to share our faith that, uh, that Jim and his ministry did, the Go and Tell Evangelism. And I love that. Super grateful for that. But yet to do the work of an evangelist is to go and share the good news of what Jesus has done. And that's what we're called to do. Then we get to the last of the skeptics, and it's unfortunately his parents. Like I said before, the group of skeptics, some are obvious. You knew the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that they would be upset. Some of the neighbors might have been pretty upset, but this one kind of comes to a shock. The parents who had heard the question time and time again, why was I born blind? Why was I born blind? And the parents that were there with him through his entire life obviously knew he was blind and obviously could see that he can see And it's discouraging because it's that they were more concerned about being kicked out of the synagogue than defending the experience of their kid. They were more concerned about maintaining some kind of religious sense of right or wrong rather than defending the fact that their son was blind and now he can see which is why parents, we need to encourage our kids as they grow in their faith and learn more about Jesus to encourage those things. 
If your kid says, I have Jesus in my heart, don't go through like the entire five points of Calvinism to try to make sure that what they said was right. Can we just accept their testimony? Like my sweet little son, three years old, like Sarah and I haven't like walked through like the Romans road with him, but he'll often say, Jesus is in my heart, daddy. And instead of trying to just push that aside or shove it down, I want to encourage that. And if Jesus is in my son's heart, I'm celebrating. Because you know who else is? Heaven. And if we hear testimony of what God is doing, are we quick to celebrate or quick to be skeptical? I hope this place is a place of hope and celebration rather than skepticism. So then real quick, we had the encounter, the miracle, the skeptics. Now it's time for the fourth and final phase, which is the Messiah. So unfortunately, this man that was born blind is now kicked out of the synagogue because they didn't align with what the Pharisees were saying. So now he's outside of what would seem to be the safe religious place. He's kicked out of the synagogue, potentially thinking what in the world's going on because up to this point, he hasn't re-seen Jesus yet. He gets thrown out, and then in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answers, you have seen him. Notice the visual language. You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And his response was belief and worship. that this man who not many days previous might have been viewed as out on his luck, no hope, born blind, so many prayers, so many cries in desperation. And yet this man meets Jesus, the Son of God. which might seem like, like odd because he approaches Jesus here and, and it seems like, well, who's this guy? This guy could have been different from the guy that did the miracle. But when one sight is, or one part of your senses is not working, the others are heightened. And I believe that as he interacted with this man named Jesus, that he would have been familiar with the sound of his voice. And that as Jesus approached and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I believe he heard that same voice that said to go to the pool and wash. And he wanted whatever he had. And what he had was himself. Jesus offered himself. Made it known that he is the Son of God. And he believed And I would argue the climax of this man's story was not his physical healing, but was in this moment when he got to see Jesus. He got to see his Savior, eyes fixated on him, and he believed, and he worshiped. This is where we'll land, and I know we're running long. I apologize, but worship team, you can come up. 
There's a lot more that we could have dissected from the sermon, but whether we see it, feel it, or believe it, church family, God is moving. In our midst, in your midst, what he is ultimately doing is for our good and for his glory. As Jesus said, that all of this would happen so that God's mighty work would be put on display. And I don't know what what you're carrying when you think about Jesus and you came into this room. Maybe you're super skeptical about Jesus. We've preached on all these miracles and you're like, that's good. Jesus did that back then, but he's not working now. Maybe you walked in here and maybe the past few months, years have been really rough. Maybe you've been attending church, attempting to pray, reading your Bible every so often. You're refraining from publicly cussing and doing all the good Christian things for however long. And maybe the overwhelming evidence around you seems to suggest that God is more absent than present. Or maybe you're all in on Jesus. But maybe you've been praying for a miracle or breakthrough that hasn't come yet. Maybe it seems as if miracles are popping off all around you, but not for you. But like the man who was born blind, my encouragement for all of us in this room is this. Maybe just patiently wait on the Lord. His timing is better than ours. And that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we could throw all of the even ifs, but even if waiting on the Lord is the best posture to take. This man waited on the Lord, and we likewise wait on the Lord. And as we wait, may the God of all comfort graciously meet us in the waiting, giving us endurance, strength, courage, and boldness to continue to walk by faith and abide deeply in him, trusting that Jesus' timing is greater than ours and that his plan is for our good and for his glory.